1: Ho, ho, ho. It is almost Christmas, and this week and next, I will be highlighting some of my favorite products that would make unique holiday gifts. Of course, since I love to read, many of them will be books, and today we are highlighting the book Brain Drive by Tom Hall. It is one of my absolute favorite fiction books I read this past year, and I know your family will love it. It is clean and perfect for your teens, tweens, and older. Snag a unique gift for your friends and family with a book by Tom Hall, Braindrive, and book two of the series, New Eridor. We even have free book club questions that you can find on our website at 1000hoursoutside.com slash braindrive. I think books make a personal and lasting gift. The stories that we read stick with us. If you want to snag a gift for me, go on over and leave a podcast review. We hit 5 million downloads last month and that adds up to just over 600 hours of editing time that I've done. Hop on over to wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a quick review. And if you're listening to this episode after the holidays, I still think this book would be a great addition to your 2024. You can grab a couple friends and do the book club using the book club questions. They are thought-provoking and interesting discussion topics. Thanks and Merry Christmas. Welcome to the 1,000 Hours Outside Podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1,000 Hours Outside, and I'm so, so, so excited about this episode. I have been looking forward to this one for a very long time. Tom Hall, author and optometrist and dad, is here. Welcome.
0: Thank you, and thank you for having me.
1: This is so exciting. So this is a funny path that we got here. Is that your wife is amazing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Brittany, and she did this Agreed. really cool, yeah, salsa making class and I came with our oldest daughter, Vivian, and we just had an absolute blast. there's like all these moms there plus Vivian and we learned how to make salsa and she had like a million tomatoes and we learned all this cool stuff and while I was there, you and I met and I got a chance to snag a copy of your two books that are novels mainly would you say written for teen yeah a young adult
0: yes yes teen young adult is where i would uh, place it firmly
1: Mm -hmm. and i just like fell in love with these books they're such page turners they're clean and i think as a parent it's hard to find good books for kids the topic is absolutely fascinating it's like sci-fi futuristic but also like what's really going on like transhumanism just makes you think about a lot of things and so this is heading into the holidays people are looking for gifts for their kids and I just am super excited to talk about your two books brain drive it's cool that there's a it's a series Mm -hmm. because it's not just one book right and so there's two these two books let's start off with just this topic of You wrote books and you wrote some novels, which Mm -hmm. is a huge accomplishment to have this storyline that weaves through two books and these characters. But I mean, this is a page turner. It kept me interested and you did it when most people say they want to, but you actually did it. Mm -hmm. So many people say, I want to write a book, but you did. You actually wrote a book, you published it. There's two of them. Can you walk us through that process of making that choice and actually finishing.
0: Yeah. So maybe this has to do a little bit with COVID. I, this all kind of started brewing in my mind around the time that we were on COVID lockdown. And I started thinking about, you know, wh- what I wanted to do with my life, things outside of work. Obviously, um, I'm an optometrist, so I have a job, you know, a steady job. But I think when we we're all stuck at home, I'm a driven person. So I'm thinking about the things that I could accomplish with my extra time. I had always kind of wanted to write a book. It was kind of like one of those bucket list things. It's like, that would be cool. And I think for me, and maybe for a lot of people, there's something that happened maybe in your childhood or or along the way that told you that you can't do that. And I think for me, maybe it's just, I was never good. I was good at math and science and You know, in school, they're like, oh, you should go into a math or a science career. And, you know, that worked out and everything. But uh, I always have had a good imagination and just thoughts of like, you know, oh, that would be a cool topic for a book or this would be a cool movie. And I think Mm -hmm. during that COVID lockdown time, I was just driven to start formulating some ideas. And I started just piling these ideas and, Okay, this would be cool. And, oh, this could be a plot twist. And I just started piling ideas for different books. And I eventually landed on the idea for Brain Drive. During that time and fast forward a little bit, I guess, because during the, the lockdown, I didn't really start on the book. It just started getting ideas. And maybe this was also a quarter life crisis. I don't know. Uh, they say that men have their midlife crisis earlier. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've heard. So I hope it's not midlife, but basically I was just looking to be more productive with my time. I I was in a funk where I was getting home from work. I, I would get the kids to bed. I would play video games, do something to just wind down, maybe watch Netflix or Hulu or whatever. I was just at a point where I was like, I need to be more productive with my time. Like, how can I use this time for maybe something that could be more beneficial, enriching? And that's when I started the process of just writing. And I just sat down and just blurted out a chapter, you know? And I'm just like, is there something to this? Like, is there something to this idea that I can run with? I then starting the learning process of learning how to write.
1: Wow, I mean, and this is just so recent. You're a math science guy, you get the idea for it in 2020 and here it is 2023 and you already have two books out. So just a phenomenal thing to inspire others that you can start now. And within a very short period of time in the grand scheme of life, you might have a couple books to your name. So let's talk about some of the themes here. We'll talk about some of the themes without giving away any parts of the book. But I I just want to reiterate, we're going to be reading this book with some of our homeschool friends. So maybe 11 up, 12 and up reading it together because the topics lead to a bunch of ethical type questions Mm -hmm. and really provoke a lot of thoughts surrounding technology and where we're headed as a society. So it's just such a page turner, but also such a thought provoker. And so I I, like, I loved it. I loved Mm -hmm. it. I loved reading it. I couldn't put it down. I took it with, I was reading it in the car. That's how you know I love a book because I'll get car sick too. So I'm like, if I read it in the car, that means I really like it. Wait, so the concept is a brain drive. Mm -hmm. And this is actually what people are talking about with transhumanism. I read about so many of these topics in books like The Singularity, and jerry kaplan has one called humans need not apply nicholas cardaris is talking about it where you could possibly have things just uploaded to your brain so like you want to be super good at guitar and it just uploads and you want to be a great singer and up you load it you want to be a chess master so many of these things offer so much promise but then there's also the other side. So people say promise versus peril and your book walks the reader through like oh yeah i see some of those downsides so can you explain what the brain drive is and where that idea came from
0: yeah so i think you did a pretty great job of describing the device so i'll go in a little bit more depth but i think you hit the nail on the head where it's a device that is implanted into the brain of an individual and this device allows you to upload and download memories from other people. So if you download a memory from your brain of an experience you had, or maybe a culmination of experiences you've had, someone else could upload that memory. And then their brain interprets those memories as if they're their own. So it's like you get this weird scenario where you feel like it's your own past and you have that connection to it because it's stored in your long-term memory portion of the brain so this obviously if you could start thinking about this logically where could we go with this what type of ethical dilemmas could come about from this and that's kind of what the book talks about because i do feel like i mean even transhumanism aside and you know maybe that is something that to think about because elon musk is talking about the Neuralink things like that that maybe and he's talking about more from a medical standpoint getting sensation back in parts of your body things like that but even that aside Technology in general nowadays, we always have to think about the negative consequences that could come about from our technological advances. There was just a scare a couple months ago with AI taking over. It's like, you know, chat, GPD, writing papers for students or doing homework and solving these things, coding, replacing coders, you know. So there's all these technological advances and there's, I think, sometimes... At some point, we're going to run into where we went too far and we didn't realize it, and then it's too late. And even things like social media, you know, kids on social media, how healthy is this for them, really? And so there's all these different things, and we could probably talk for an hour about that alone. Mm-hmm. But to kind of wind it back to the book and uh, reel it in a little bit, my book focuses on this device, this brain drive, and how this could impact a society, how it does impact in a 17-year-old individual. I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because this is on the back of the book, but this 17 year old has a eidetic memory or a photographic memory. And if you start thinking about, OK, what does that mean? If we're talking about implanting memories from one person into another, someone with a photographic memory becomes far more valuable to society. And that's where the, what this book kind of focuses on is children with these photographic memories that are being utilized to create better memories for other people. Then there's ethical dilemmas involved with that. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, I think it, it takes some interesting turns and along the way mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of explores these concepts and, and really makes you think.
1: hmm. So one of the ones that struck me was there's this concept of the loss of the middle class. So you have this brain drive and what's available to the general public are these modules that aren't that great and if you want to get the really good modules they cost more money the government owns them private business owns them and so there becomes this wider chasm between rich and poor and your main character is having to hunt for food and this is part of the story there you know they're, they're really dealing with food shortage and once he gets exposed to this brain drive Is Cool, right? It's like, oh, you know, I know the name of this plant and I know the name of this fern and I didn't know before and now I know all these things and then he has this realization Wait a minute. This is why hunting has become so hard is because everyone else has this advantage That I didn't have and so he says this is why he had such a difficult time finding deer over the last few years every other hunter had access to this module at the drop of a hat Zero training needed, putting him at a severe disadvantage. He was competing with a city full of expert level hunters. I just love that in numerous aspects you draw out this dilemma of promise versus peril, like, oh, this seems really cool on the surface, but oh wait, this has actually become a problem. Was that your plan? Was it your plan to highlight? Because there's several of them throughout the book.
0: Um, not necessarily. Um, I think it worked out that way. And I think part of it is trying to build a world that makes sense. Like I've, I've, when I, when planning this book and plotting through this book, I was trying to make sure that this world was cohesive and it, and it felt like a real world and the world is very similar to ours. So there's, it's not like a fantastical world or anything like that aside from this device, but yeah, you would think just, you know, if, if you're like, okay, yeah, if I can download all this information to my brain or upload it to my brain instantaneously and and just know all these things, how great would that be? Everyone would be able to learn all these things. You know, we could solve world hunger because people could get skilled jobs easily. But the reality is, uh, and what you, what you see in this book, is that this divide only grows because people who have the money can buy the good modules. So instead of learning to be a doctor, now you just gotta fork over cash and practice being a doctor, but you gotta get the cash. And not only that, but if there are modules that are widely available, that just means that everyone has access to those and everyone can do the same job. So you're now competing with everyone else that is at your maybe income level for all of the jobs. And so this doesn't necessarily solve those problems. So you have this amazing device, and like everything, we find a way to kind of mess it up.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I just think with technology in general, and that's why it's such a good jumping off point for conversation, because it comes up several times in the book. With any new technology, there usually will be downsides, but we tend to focus on the things that are very exciting about it. So one of the things that was interesting was that Caleb loved reading. So Caleb is your main character. Caleb's homeschooled, so that's kind of cool, right? Yeah. I know you're homeschooling family, we're a homeschooling family. So it's fun to see. You don't tend to see that in books very often. But Caleb's homeschooled and he does not have this brain drive It's kind of how this book starts off. So not a spoiler either, because it's right at the beginning, but he doesn't have it. Probably one of maybe very few in society that doesn't have it. And he loves books. And even when he goes to this, you know, this government facility, you know, they put some books in his room and you know, he loves them. But libraries don't exist anymore. And so that's another one of those subtle things that like, oh, wait a minute, you know, you love the library and you go check things out and you read books and you sit in the cozy chair by the fireplace and all of a sudden they're closed for good. That's is like this promise versus peril. So I think for teens and tweens and adults, there is a lot to talk about in terms of the perils of technology. Another one was about just wondering. There was a sentence that said, he knew what every building was before he even had the chance to wonder. That's powerful, Tom. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, it'd be cool to know everything, but like, isn't there something cool also about wondering?
0: <laughs> yeah, for, it, really. Um, I tried as best as I could to describe the sensation of knowing something that you, it's almost like you don't know it, but you know it. And the best way I just, des- I think I used in the book to describe this is kind of like deja vu. It's like, if you, you know, if you've ever had deja vu, where you're like, I feel like I've been in this scenario before, but I can't place it. And the character experiences this with some of these memories where it's like, they're just a little bit, you know, there's something off about them in, in a sense, uh, where it feels like it's your own, but it kind of doesn't, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you had said that too, where this Caleb is saying like these, I've got these memories, I have this information, but they're not full. There's no personal aspect to it. It's just this plain knowledge. It is an interesting thing to think like, oh, I wonder what's in there. I wonder what's over here, but to never have that sense of wonder. So what a cool thing to be able to have conversations with about kids, because like you talked about social media, anything that has to do with technology, you could take this book and say, what are some of the downsides to this situation or that situation? And it would facilitate conversation. I think about any technology, what are some of the downsides to AI or chat GPT, Mm -hmm. those types of things. It's a really cool theme through the book that technology has some really shiny pieces, but also some very significant consequences as well. So the, the characters are super fun. When you said earlier, learning how to write, did you take any courses or did you just base off of novels that you loved as a kid?
0: So n- no courses. Uh, I watched a lot of YouTube videos. <laughs> so um, just on plotting and how other people have done it in the past and how to flesh out characters, you know, because it sounds easy to just write a story. But I did a, I stumbled along the way. I did a lot of learning and I would say. Writing your first novel, most people just never publish it because after you're done with your first one, it's kind of like you can see the flaws. And I think this is common with a lot of different art forms. Um, I've known musicians, I've known people who do painting, things like that, where once you finish, it's almost like you've spent so much time on it. You feel like the next thing you're going to create is so much better or the thing that you're working on now. So, like when I was writing the second book, I'm like, the the way that i'm writing this is so much better than the first book it, it's it's like it's hard to describe it's like i almost like you know how dislike how i did the first one and once you get to the second one um it, obviously i'm proud of uh, both books um and i think they're they're both uh great books um but this uh the process of writing it, itself it, it was a big learning process so what I did, and maybe this isn't the best path for uh, some people that are aspiring to to write, is I just sat down and, and wrote. And so I just kept writing, kept going with the story. Um, not really, I had like a general outline, but I didn't outline every chapter specifically, mm-hmm. like this is going to happen, this is the story arc. And that's the thing that I learned a lot about later is creating a good character arc, making sure that your character's motives are complete and obvious to the reader And so some of that just came out in the first book naturally. And then when I went back in the editing process, that's when I put a lot of that stuff in because I already had that, but I knew that if I didn't sit down and just start writing and finish it, I would never finish it. So I was trying not to be too self-critical the first time through. And I think that's a great thing. Some people may feel more comfortable plotting out the whole book and just knowing where they're going. I didn't even have the back half planned when I started and i think the back half is where i made a lot of great choices and kind of tied things together
1: it's so fascinating that you can just do something you can do something new you're an optometrist and now also you're a novelist with these two phenomenal books that are so needed i think that kids are always looking for good stories to read and it's hard to find sometimes you kind of exhaust all the options that are out there and the characters i I thought they were really well done and. Dusty is like the sidekick, Mm -hmm. takes things very literally, has his own struggles and is really working through social skills. Where did that character come from?
0: I wanted to have so Dusty was definitely a planned character because I wanted to have a character that had that was quirky. You know, I wanted I wanted someone that Caleb Because Caleb was a homeschooled kid and he didn't really have a lot of social experiences. But then you have, in contrast, Dusty, and he's been around other kids his whole life, but he still hasn't figured out this social thing. And Dusty, I I planned for him to have Asperger's in this story, but he has, I ended up saying just autism because it's just, it's, it's an autistic disorder. And I didn't think the name Asperger's fit in this other world. And also I, so when I was doing the editing, my editor was like, hey, you shouldn't say it this way, just say autistic. And so Dusty, I thought was a very, he's probably one of my favorite characters to write. And I eventually maybe will do a novel that's kind of focused on him uh, and his his backstory and things like that. But yeah, so, so the idea just came, came about to have a quirky character and then it fit just with the brain drive because... Uh, there are autistic savants and there are um, people who have these incredible memories and skills. And I just wanted to highlight that and how in this story, he's being exploited for his gift, even though he's provided for and things like that. He in a, in a sense is being taken advantage of and maybe his life is, is better there um, than it, maybe it was at home, but it's still sad. And And so Caleb comes in and they kind of become best friends in a sense and he finally has a friend, you know? And so I think Dusty is a, from people I've talked to, Dusty is the main favorite of the characters. Rava, the female character, I also had a blast writing. I wanted a really strong female character, someone who just kind of, I love strong female characters in uh, books. Uh, I just think they're, refreshing to read and I don't know I, I just thought that she kind of tied the the group together you know in these mm-hmm. few different um, types of personalities and they they blend really well together even though Rava and Dusty kind of clash at times
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's a cool group a cool group of characters Rava is like the love interest so this just ties into you also you know it's a it's a great novel for teens and I don't I mean like I said I really liked it so I think that there is a lot there. And she comes from now, then this is a thing with books that are science fiction or they're based off of places that don't exist. How do you pronounce where she's from?
0: Oh, Eridor.
1: Eridor. Okay. And so then that's the second book is New Eridor. Did you know, at what point did you know you were going to write a second book? The second book is called New Eridor.
0: Yes. So I originally set out to write a trilogy. So I knew at the beginning I wanted to write more than one book. I thought at first it would be a three book series. When I got to the second book, I found a way to tie everything up nicely. And I kind of, at that point was looking to move on to a different series. And so I kind of was like, can I, maybe I can squeeze another book out of this, but is this really what I want to write right now? And two, is this what a reader would want to read? And so I ended up just writing two. The, Original idea of three books kind of fell to the wayside when I was writing the second one. And the character Rava is from this, this land that has been kind of desolated in a in a world war. And her people have fled the land. They've immigrated to other countries around the world. And she has come to this uh, mainland of Matera, which is uh, where the first book takes place. Then in the second book, we get to see a little bit more of Eridor as they travel to her homeland and yeah i don't want to get too much into the spoilers there but i think that the idea for the second book was always there now the specifics were never there the specifics came later so after i finished the first book and edited the first book and i got that one ready to go then i started writing the second book so i actually had the second book finished before i published the first book because i wanted to have a follow-up about six months later at least and that's what it worked worked out to or actually maybe it was less than six months that I, I between the two. So by the time I I published the first one, I was editing the second one. So after I, I finished the first one and started on the second one, I didn't know where I was going to go with this. But what I did know is my characters and I took the characters motives and said, OK, what would these characters want to do? Like, where cool. where does this how does this make sense? You know." And I started evaluating the characters and I looked at it from their perspectives and just thought, okay, Rava would absolutely want to do this because that's the person she is. And Caleb would want to help because that's the person he is. And Dusty, well, you'll have to see what happens to Dusty. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so Dusty has uh, a bright future ahead of him as well after the first book.
1: What do green eggs and your Christmas dinner have in common? They both need a ham to be complete. But not just any ham, mind you. Make it a spiral cut heritage pork masterpiece from Good Ranchers. It's the kind of ham that'll steal the show at your family gathering. And guess what? You get it for free with any Good Ranchers subscription. That's a whopping $99 value that you get for free in your first order. Simply subscribe to any box And you'll get your free holiday ham included in any order. This subscription is amazing. You get $25 off every order, a free gift in every third box, and free shipping on express delivery. The best part is knowing exactly where your meat comes from, though. And that's a local American farm. So here's the scoop. Head on over to GoodRanchers.com and subscribe today with code 1000HOURS to claim your free holiday ham. But act fast. This offer won't last forever. Order before December 11th for guaranteed delivery by Christmas. Snag one of these limited stock holiday hams before they sell out. Head to GoodRanchers.com and use code 1000HOURS when you subscribe to get your free 10-pound holiday ham. Don't settle for the same old holiday fare. Elevate your feast with Good Ranchers this year. Good Ranchers, American meat delivered.
0: I think that the, the ideas just came from what I thought about my characters and what they would want to do in this world.
1: Was it hard for you to pull the trigger at the end and actually put it out in the world?
0: In a sense, yes. Um, There's always that nerve wracking feeling when you're releasing any new art into the world um, is that people will not like it. I think for myself, I'm very overly self-critical. So when I'm, thinking about, and, and by the time you're done with the book, no one tells you this before you write a book, but you will have read this book like 20 times. So through the you know initial writing, the rewriting of chapters, the editing process, the re-editing, the proofreads, it's just a lot of reading the same book over and over. So by the time you release it, you're almost sick of it in a sense. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like, you see all the flaws. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm like, okay, everyone else is going to see these flaws or, you know, everyone else is going to think these things. So yeah, in a sense, it is difficult. On the other hand, I was super stoked to just have it out there and finally be proud of what I did. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of trumped the nerves in the end. And I felt really good about it. And my wife, the supportive wife that she is, you talked about how wonderful she is. She really Mm -hmm. is. She was very supportive in this entire process. and. I don't think it, it would have happened if I didn't have her. In the end, uh, we were camping when when the book was released and she even made me like a little cake that was like, congratulations. And at the time, I couldn't enjoy it. <laughs> like at the time, I was like, I feel like this is too much. You know, I I kind of. But in the end, I'm I'm glad that she did it because it, it really is, I think, for anyone that writes a book, it's tough. It's a long process. And anyone who writes a book, that is just an amazing feat, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and it's such a gift. A good story is a gift. A story that sticks with someone, a story that gives you something to talk about. It's a gift to other people. And especially as a parent, when you're looking for something for your kids to read, this would be a great read aloud as a family. There's a little torture scene at the end of brain drive that maybe for like, you know, a seven, eight, nine year old might be a little intense. But beyond that, you got a kid that's, you know, early middle school and beyond, this book is just a perfect read aloud and all the topics that you bring up. Like, so you talk about this concept of Caleb and he's a hardworking kid. He's this homeschool kid. And he says from a young age, he's been ingrained that success comes from hard work. And then all of a sudden he's labeled gifted and he just gets a free pass into all these different things. And so he grapples with that. And that is something that, is great for kids to think about. And there was one other one that really caught my interest because I talked to this guy named Andy Crouch. He has a book called The TechWise Family and another one called Something Like The Life You're Looking For. And he talks about with technology, there's this promise of like, now you get to, but there's also this now you won't be able to piece. A lot of times that come together and we only talk about the now you get to, And he talks about it like maybe with the highway. Now you get to have an automated car. Now you get to drive fast on the highway. But also now you don't get to take your horse on there or it just changes things, right? And so one of the ones in here was about how you had to get this brain drive. This is like a big topic, right? And you have to get it and people might report you. And if you don't have one, you have to wear a hat in order to cover it up so that you don't get reported. Can you talk about, that piece of it and how that might fit in with where we're at in society today
0: yeah i think it was actually kind of funny because so the brain drive is a forced medical procedure that they do on children and the dilemma here is it's a forced medical procedure and you don't really have a choice in the matter and most people have been okay with this because they see the brain drive as a strict upgrade to their life and the complication rate for this surgery is super duper low and according to the book that i made up <laughs> and so uh this device is seen societally as a strict benefit to one's life because if you're in a society where everyone has this and you don't have it that doesn't seem good right and so this does hit on a little bit of the topic of forced medical procedures and i had a friend that uh kind of read the book after it was released and it was released after there was the talk about COVID vaccinations being required. And so he kind of was like, is this like a thing about that? And I'm like, no, no, this book was written long before the um, vaccine mandates and things like that. But it was just a you know, unique timing because like some people may have felt certain types of ways about that, about the fact that it's a benefit to society, but it's also, you know, you're forcing it on people's and I don't want to get into that or anything like that. But I anytime there's a forced medical procedure, I think there is, you know, something to think about in a dilemma that, that may occur to any individual that is forced to go through it. As we mentioned before, Caleb is he doesn't have one. And so to him, th- this whole thing is a big experience. Like he's getting this, you know, device implanted and like, what does this mean? And what you know, and so he has the perspective of someone who isn't part of this hive mind of like this is good this is good this is good so this outside perspective that he brings is questioning everything about this and it's thinking critically i think that is such an important concept for kids these days to kind of keep in mind is that to think critically especially when you're being told not to
1: wow tom it's such a book it is such a book and the marketing of it is interesting too i think the kids you read it you see the marketing like. They say to him, it's amazing technology. I wouldn't even be able to function without it. And here he is, a teenager, who's like, well, I've been fine up until this point. Why do I really need it? Do I have to get it? Can't I deny it? There's just a lot to think through. And it's interesting. I talked to this woman who is like the COO or something for the Center for Humane Technology. So this is the movie. uh, It was a documentary with Tristan Harris about screen use. And I can't remember the name of it right now. But then he came up with this thing called Center for Humane Technology. And they're talking about the ethics of technology. And I think what you did is you took all of these questions and all these thoughts and you put it in story form. Mm -hmm. It's really brilliant, Tom. You know, it's in story form so that, like, for me, it really changed the whole thing. Of course, these are things that we're talking about. We talked about recently, there was this article called good morning bio or something like that, where, you know, they're trying to say like, well, you wake up and then every, you know, your whole surroundings are perfect to what you need. And this thing measures your stool and you get delivered the perfect vitamin. And so, you know, I think that people are trying to put into words what this might look like and how do we grapple with these things, but you did it. I mean, you threw it in a novel and all of these things I think that we're grappling with or things that we should be thinking about, but might not be Are Wrapped up into this story, so I just I cannot sing the praises of it highly enough as a page-turner Obviously, but also very thought-provoking themes throughout it and would be just great for Any middle high schooler you want to do some sort of a book study if you wanted to do a book club There's all sorts of things that you could talk to from it. So Tom Hall you can find it on Amazon Braindrive is book one. New Erador is book two. So cool that there's a second book yep. because you're not just dropped at the first one. There's an extra thing that you can read after coming into the holidays. Put it in the stocking. Get it for your grandkids. And you can find out more at TomHallWrites.com where people can sign up for your newsletters and see what else you have coming. And just a really cool, inspiring story, Tom, that you're like this math science guy who writes novels. Yeah. And we're not stuck in a box.
0: Yes. Yes. I appreciate that. I also wanted to mention, I do have the first book on Audible. I recorded an audio book myself. So I did the character voices and things like that. So um, it was very interesting doing Rava's voice because I implemented a sort of accent and doing a female voice as a male is a little bit difficult. And that was a whole nother learning experience, Uh, but doing one with an accent was even uh, more difficult. So If you're looking for something that you can just listen to in the car ride on the way to work, it's on Audible as well.
1: It's so cool. I actually saw that. It says, if you prefer to listen to the author to me, Tom, bring the characters to life, check it out. So that's really, I just am so impressed that you have gone into this new world and done all the parts of it from publishing a book, writing a book, publishing a book, doing the uh, the audiobook, which I think that audiobooks are super fun and l- people love to listen to those. In the car, heading on vacation. What a perfect thing. Like if you're traveling over the holidays, this would be a great one to listen to. And are you working on then a new series?
0: Yeah, so the first books, uh, the first two books I, I wrote were sci-fi kind of like dystopian type novels. And I would say just for the listeners um, out there, it's it's more light sci-fi. So it's some people have told me like, yeah, I just don't really like the science fiction. The sci-fi is very light. If you can understand what we're saying about the brain drive that's the sci-fi part of it yeah
1: it's that's, like a little futuristic it's like a futuristic novel yeah
0: it's not like um heady. and uh, only
1: a little okay. futuristic because these are things like you said with Neuralink that people i've read and i've definitely read in books recently where they talk about being able to upload a set of skills so yeah. it's something that people are currently talking about
0: mm-hmm. uh so i've decided I, I read a lot of fantasy myself and i decided to uh write an urban fantasy novel. And that one is almost finished. That one follows a detective who has the ability to bring people back to life. And so he uses this to question victims um, of uh, he's a homicide detective. And uh, so this one is a little bit more, um, I would say, young adult readers is the prime audience. But he has this gift of doing this. But he's also very he he hides it from the world around him is, you know, fiance doesn't know his, his uh, uh, boss doesn't know his co-workers don't know and so he's he's hiding this thing about himself and so it's an urban fantasy where the theme is more about be yourself embrace yourself and so he has to learn that through a very unique way <laughs> and uh, you know in this urban fantasy world and then I also have plans for a, a full epic fantasy that I'm really passionate about. And I really want to rate that one. But I wanted to rate this urban fantasy first to kind of dip my toes into a fantasy world, get some experience. Um, and yeah, it should be good, I think. And uh, certainly, like I said before, I always feel like the next thing is better than, than the previous mm-hmm. things. So if you mm-hmm. do enjoy Brain Drive and New Airdor, I think you will like uh, the next, uh, what what's next to come.
1: It's interesting to come at it from an outside perspective. Like I just picked up a book and read it and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Paige Turner from beginning to end, love the storyline, love the themes. And so, you know, you look at it, like you said, from a more critical eye, but I looked at it from the sense of a good story. And does it give me things to talk about and think about? Yes, yes, yes. Entertaining, yes. And so, just a great option all around. So, people can check out your books, Tom Hall and there's more to come so that's always a really cool thing right tom like if you Mm -hmm. like an author you're happy that they continue to write books and so you can be excited for the next one okay we're going to switch gears yep because you're also an optometrist yes and we've actually never had an optometrist on this podcast although people have written in it just has never come to fruition they'll say my husband is or i know this and they want to come in and talk about kids in their eyesight and so you're the first one yeah can you just give us a little overview on light full spectrum light and kids getting outside and that near and far vision that type of thing
0: yeah so i am a full-time practicing optometrist i practice at Whole eye care and shout out whole eye care uh, so i focus a lot on pediatric eye care and eventually, I may even um, start doing vision therapy at my practice. I just, I love working with kids, they're so fun. But also, so this has led me to kind of do a bit more research into this area. And uh, one thing that has been studied in the past is nearsightedness. And we continue to study nearsightedness because we still don't understand it fully. Uh, we understand there's a genetic component we understand that it tends to get worse over time. And so the question is, why is it getting worse? And why is it getting worse at rates that we've never seen before? Hmm. One study, and I can't remember when this study was done, and and there's a lot of studies that have have found the same thing. So I don't need to quote one specific study, but they set out to prove that nearsightedness was from reading and up-close work. And this is before devices were even a thing. They were like, okay, let's take this population of children and compare the nearsighted kids with those who are not nearsighted and compare all these different factors, you know, time spent outside, near work, how many hours a day they read, things like that. What they found was surprising. They, they thought they were going to find that kids who, who read more were more likely to become nearsighted. And what they actually found is that kids who spend more time indoors were the ones that become more nearsighted. And also kids who have a very close reading distance also became more nearsighted over time. So kids who hold things very, very close or spend more time indoors. And if you really think about it, it makes sense. Um, now, our bodies are are very efficient in a lot of different ways. And the body will adapt to your environment and, and change things based on your environment. I mean, even hormone levels change based on your environment and things going on around you. If you imagine that, If you're inside, maybe the farthest thing that you look away at at away is about 8 to 10 feet away, right? So Mm -hmm. that's pretty near. Uh, In the world of optometry, we consider distance vision 20 feet or further. So you probably have heard 20-20. And so we consider 20 feet or further distance vision. And so that just means that you have to be looking 20 feet or further for your eyes to be looking at distance. And if you think about it, most people, their houses are not... 20 feet long or rooms that are in the houses are not 20 feet long. Even if you're watching TV, it's maybe 12 feet away. Putting yourself in this environment where all you're looking at are things closer than 20 feet could naturally make you more nearsighted because your body is saying, okay, you want to see things that are close. Like this is what you do all day long. This is way more efficient for you. But then when you get outside <laughs> and you start driving and you realize I can't see or your or kids are saying, I can't see the board at school because they're sitting 15, 16, 20 feet away. Sure. Now they can't see. Uh, what has been something that I recommend to all of my patients is, uh, especially those with a family history of nearsightedness, is making sure the kids spend at least an hour outside every day. One to two hours is, is what they found in the study to be. It, ideally, two hours would be great, but one to two hours of outdoor time reduces nearsightedness by. 40 to 50%. Uh, that's what I recommend for all my patients. And so if you have children, I would get them outside, <laughs> you know, and this is something I think, especially kids in middle school struggle with, because that's the age where people start gravitating towards activities that are indoors. Hmm. If you have a middle schooler that doesn't play sports and they're, they're not involved in things that go on outside. It can be very easy for them to get just absorbed into video games and then doing their schoolwork and all of that. And you can't really be a helicopter parent to a 12 year old, but encouraging kids to get outside and, and making sure that they're understanding that this is the best thing for their vision, I think is super important.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Katie Bowman calls it distance looking, distance looking, which is yeah. a phrase. I mean, that's what you're saying. It's a phrase that i never heard of until very recently and not something that you really talk about too often, or even think about that. You want to have opportunities to look both near and far. For our teens, they love shooting hoops. They like riding their skateboards. And so there are things I think that teenagers like to do outside. You just got to kind of find the ones that they like. And then you go with that. And it really helps. Do you talk much about, and there's a lot of books that talk about your 2020 vision, 2040, like the actual distance that you can see, but also there's the issue of the eyes working together as a team. Do you talk about that often with patients or is it more just the actual distance that they can see?
0: Yeah. So I, on all children especially, I do what's called a cover test where we check to make sure the eyes are aligned. And so I do it near and far and I make sure that um, kids' eyes are lining up correctly. If there is any discrepancy in how their eyes are lining up and how they should, I refer them for vision therapy consultations, things like that. Um, th- these binocular vision disorders can be incredibly common. I think that it's best to uh, get these kids to, to these vision therapy consults. Um, and you know, if your child maybe is having headaches or trouble reading, eye strain, things like that, that can sometimes be because of these eye misalignments. I should also mention that I've seen numerous kids that have just a really high prescription that are undiagnosed, but they are diagnosed as ADHD. And so when they come in and I say to the parent, they can't see up close very well. They're, they're very farsighted and they need to wear glasses and this is going to help them with the up close. And I also mentioned, oftentimes these kids are misdiagnosed as ADD. The parents, they're just like, yes, (laughs) like, that he cannot sit down, he can't focus. It's like we think we always thought there was something wrong with the you know how he reads or the learning, and these can manifest. These vision problems can manifest as learning disorders and things like that. So I would say if you know if your child has never been into to see an eye doctor, get them in at least once. My recommendation is get them in as a baby, and I know it sounds weird, but uh, hmm. six to twelve months, I, we we participate in a program called Infancy where we provide free eye exams to babies. And from six to 12 months, this is just a screening exam. It it makes sure that there's no eye turns, no, you know, super high prescription we should monitor, that the back of the eyes look healthy. And most of the time they are. But the issue is that the majority of the visual development that happens in children happens before the age of seven Mm. and even more so before the age of five. And when do kids get to school? Five. Mm. What happens a lot of times is when kids finally get into school and then they get their vision screening, that's when parents find out, oh, wow, they couldn't see since they were born. And so I usually recommend a free eye exam before a year old, and then usually around, you know, two years later, around age two, two and a half. And then if everything is good there, at least age five. And then general follow-ups based on your doctor's recommendations after that point. But I think a lot of times the eyes get neglected because parents think that if if they can point to a deer in the field and say, can you see that? And the child says, yes, I can see that deer. That may mean one of their eyes is good, but what about the other one? Mm-hmm. And kids often think that the way that they see the world is how everyone sees the world. So if, if a child is has maybe a prescription that is making the world a little bit blurry, they just assume that's how you see it too. Mm-hmm. So some important things to hit on there, I think, uh, just understanding those childhood development periods for kids and when to get them in for eye exams. I know you mentioned blue light earlier, and uh, did you want me to touch on that a little bit as well?
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, totally. um, Blue light, this is a big thing now. uh, You know, I think everyone has heard of blue light, and they're like, you know, a lot of my patients come in and they're like, is this really harmful? Should I be wearing blue light glasses? And I'll tell you what the studies say, because that's, I'm a studies guy. I'm like, what do the studies say? So, the studies certainly say that people who wear blue light filters while they're on devices generally find it more comfortable to have a blue light filter. They find that they're, um, they get less eye strain and eye fatigue. Um, So that in, in that respect, it's good. What the studies also say is that blue light can mess with circadian rhythms. So being on devices late at night can mess with their circadian rhythm, your body's ability to calm down at the end of the day and fall asleep, and then the ability to stay asleep if this blue light is blocking and inhibiting the release of melatonin in the the body, we can have these sleep disorders and and interruptions to our healthy sleep pattern. So certainly in those aspects, I think blue light filters at least are worth considering. Uh, What we're starting to realize now is that People whose eyes have a natural ability to block blue light. So Hmm. when there's more, uh, we would call macular pigment in the eye. So if if you have more macular pigment, you have the natural ability to block more blue light. People who have the the Ah. more natural ability to block blue light have a lower risk of macular degeneration long-term. And this isn't in every study, but some studies are finding this. And so I've been recommending blue light blockers to my patients just saying, hey, this is good in these aspects, these, you know, less eye fatigue, more comfortable computer vision, you know, healthier for your melatonin levels at night, but maybe, and we don't know yet, but maybe this could also help the macula long-term and studies are still being performed and, and, and done. And so hopefully eventually we get the answer to these questions, but I think at, at the very least it's, it's worth considering. And I recommend blue light coatings to all my patients
1: so interesting so you can find out how much macular pigment you have like that's something that could be measured
0: yeah so um there's a few different devices but at our office we use something called an mpod well they call it an mpod but the the testing what it does it's macular pigment optical density is what it stands for and it's measuring the amount of pigment you have in that macula it's it's a pretty interesting test it's a very frustrating test to do for patients sometimes because it's the instructions I don't know i've done it and i'm still i've done it multiple times and i'm like i feel like i'm not doing it right and that's what i that's what all the patients say they're like i feel like i'm i didn't do that test right and i'm like yeah that's normal
1: (laughs) (laughs) so interesting well tom this has been absolutely fascinating just from the optometry point of view and from these books and from the fact that you have just gone off and done something that so many people say that they want to do but don't ever actually accomplish it and so I think that people will be inspired in many facets and also this is a good holiday gift so you are welcome to everyone who is listening because everyone is scrambling for holiday gifts and if you have a teen in your life or a pre-teen and they like to read, this is a great one. You could do a book club with your homeschool group, with your neighborhood kids, with your school classroom. If there's a teacher listening and you got sixth graders or seventh graders or 11th graders, there is so much content here that you can talk about. You can learn more at Tom Hall Writes. Check out the books. There's two of them, Brain Drive and New Erador. They're both on Amazon. They will come quickly and you will love them. Tom, we always end with the same question. What is a favorite memory from your childhood that was outside?
0: Yes, so uh, I did think about this. Uh, <laughs> so I um, I think uh, my one of my favorite memories, is, so for a while I lived in a trailer park growing up and I loved living there because there was just so many kids just everywhere. And this was, you know, if you've ever heard the expression, like back in the day, I used to go outside and, I would only come home, my, my parents would say, you better be home before the streetlights turn on. And like, that was your curfew, right? So like, that's that was my childhood, is like being outside to the point where like, okay, I got to race on my bike home before these streetlights turn on. And one of the things that we love to do as the kids um, gather in the park, at the trailer park, is play tackle football <laughs> with no equipment. <laughs> and there was kids of all ages. I mean, I think I was like, 10 at the time that this story occurs and we were playing tackle football and there there was high schoolers there was middle schoolers you know elementary schoolers and we're just having a blast and i'm running I, i catch this pass and i'm just running and this high schooler this girl just absolutely demolishes me she just levels me and uh i fall on the ground and i got the wind knocked out of me and at the time I had never had that happen before. So I thought I was dying. (laughs) Like, I was like, I cannot breathe. So I just got, I got tackled. I'm laying on the ground. My older brother, who's also in high school at this point, he comes over and I'm like, I can't breathe. I'm dying. And then my brother just starts laughing. And at this point, I'm like, what is it? Why is he laughing? I'm dying. Like, I am going to die. And, um... You have to. If you knew my brother, this would make absolute sense. Um, but it, he was born on April Fool's Day, and that is just him is April Fool's Day. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. um, anyway, he's he starts laughing, and he's like, and he just walks away. And I'm like, <laughs> does he not see that I'm dying? And so then I eventually, you know, catch my breath. I get up, and I'm like, what was that? And he's like, you got the wind knocked out of you. You're you're fine. And so he explained it and. I think just looking back on that, that is such a funny memory because, um, I don't know. It's just for a lot of reasons, it just feels, it's something that will always stick with me. That moment of mm-hmm. feeling like I'm going to die and they're just my brother and just someone laughing
1: at you and,
0: <laughs> and just like, it's almost like you don't know what you don't know. And like, yeah. it's kind of, I don't know. And just the, the memories of, of playing football in that field, I just will, will always stick with me and that one in particular.
1: Wow. Tom, do you know my? I have a book coming out in like two weeks. It's called "Until the Streetlights Come On."
0: Yeah, (laughs) congratulations! That's That's perfect. It was like
1: you just plugged my book. So how cool is that? You said you used to play, and that was your curfew. So um, I love it. Well, Tom, I so appreciate you taking the time. I have so thoroughly enjoyed your books, and just am thrilled to get an opportunity to talk with the author, and thrilled for people to get an opportunity. listen to the author and hopefully be inspired to go after their dreams the things that they've been thinking about and actually complete them and to get this cool new series for their kids thank you so much
0: thank you for having me jenny thank you so much